0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Marcy Dermanski, author of Bad Marie, Twins, and most recently, The Red Car, which tells the story of Leah Kaplan, an unhappily married writer living in New York who travels to San Francisco to attend the funeral of a former boss. Leah is surprised to learn that her former boss, Judy, leaves her her most prized possession, a red sports car Leah never liked. During the course of her visit to San Francisco, Leah revisits her past and evaluates her life and moves toward a new paradigm for living. We began the interview discussing the inspiration for the novel.
1: Um, My inspiration for this, I really started this book. It was a writing exercise for myself that I gave to myself because I had been struggling. And I decided, why don't I try to copy a writer that, that I love? And so I decided to just write a Haruki Murakami novel because I've always loved him, although he doesn't seem like a writer I would fall for but I did and he's just a best-selling international novelist I was like well I'll try to be a best-selling international novelist it was a joke I was having a hard time and so I reread some of his books and I I took the structure of The Wild Sheep Chase and then I started to write a book using his structure and then I ended up writing like a deeply personal novel about a woman going on a journey which is think what I needed to write but it was completely unplanned what came out starting with this book. (laughs)
0: So if people yeah. read Murakami, would they recognize the structure in your book or did it I, kind of disappear over various edits?
1: I think it disappeared. I think people who haven't read Murakami don't know it. I think I actually I mean I make direct references to him so you can't miss it, but it doesn't feel like a Murakami novel so much as there is some supernatural elements kind of throughout the book, but I don't go quite as far out as he does I mean, so I really like what happened and I liked in a way how the structure of his book challenged me, how I jumped through time and things that I didn't do. And I, I in my previous work, I wrote a prologue, which sounds so basic, but I've never written a prologue before. And so it really was fun to have some outside structure to let me work with.
0: So you said you ended up writing a deeply personal story. So what kinds of thoughts, like what was nagging at you underneath that came out in this book?
1: Um, I mean, while saying this book is very much like fiction, I was going through a divorce and I was just having a hard time processing it. I was actually having a hard time like wondering why did I get divorced and this is so difficult and why did I choose this and I was really doubting myself because just getting divorced is so hard. And so I think in the end I wrote a book where there's a character where in the end you're completely rooting for her to get divorced and start her own life. And so I think I was kind of writing a book that I wanted to read that I couldn't actually find. And that was a big part of it. And then I just took parts that some of this book is so way out there and some of this book is so personal. There's a mother that's based on my mother and her problems with being happiness. And I kind of felt like I was just sort of putting myself into to my writing in a way that I, I hadn't before, so I feel like this book is, is a little bit more honest than some of my, my other two novels, and I enjoyed that, and it was scary, too, in a way. But then people read my book who don't know me, and they have no idea what's fiction and what's not fiction, and it just worked out well. It was what I needed to do at the time.
0: So I would say that the premise of the book is may, – maybe it's twofold, but basically mm-hmm. the, the main thrust of the story is your main character, Leah, when mm-hmm. she was younger – had a boss who was really kind to her and really understood her and and loved her. And Leah realizes later that she loved her, too. Her boss's name was Judy. And, yes. But she never told her that. And she was in San Francisco when she was young and ended up moving to the East Coast. And then Judy dies. And so she's called back into her past in a way to sort of reevaluate these things. So I'm, I'm wondering about this boss relationship. I think, you know, for some women, they've had bosses in their lives that have really inspired them. So what was the genesis or, or the thoughts for you about making this a boss character?
1: Well, you know, in real life, I had a boss and um, she, in fact, who, who ha- I had a similar relationship and, and she, died after i had left san francisco and i never got to say goodbye to her and when i found out that she died i never got on an airplane and went to her funeral i just you know i was like oh this person died and then my life went on on a regular day to day basis and i think that just felt so strange and so you can rewrite you can rewrite your life in a way with fiction and in the novel leah gets on a plane and goes to judy's funeral but i feel like just like you said so many people have i mean the workplace is a strange place because you spend so When people have jobs, so much time with people, more time than you do with your family and your friends, and they they matter to you in in ways that you don't really quite understand or appreciate because you think it's just work. But it's more than how you spend your time and who you spend it with. And so I got to kind of rewrite parts of my life that I wish could be different in this novel, and that was fun.
2: The publishing industry is a system.
0: Books are mirrors into people's
2: experiences. And in Season 2 of Missing Pages... We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of The Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial.
0: She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired.
2: We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't world proof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to Season 2 wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Marcy Dermanski, author of The Red Car. So Leah, when Oops. she's young, we see the book open and she's at college And she's talking a little bit about her high school life, and she didn't want to go to college a virgin, so she had a lot of sex before (laughs) she went because she thought she would be left out. And she gets to college, and she finds out she's not really left out. And then when she encounters this man who, or young boy who really loves her named Jonathan Bean— he she knows she has power over him and he wants to have sex with her and she says okay but you have to pay me a hundred dollars
1: part of that was because at the time i was reading the wild sheep chase over to um write a novel and the book starts with a man reading the newspaper and finding about a woman who dies and that woman happened to be a prostitute that he slept with and then he just sort of dismisses her she never comes back in the book and because i was rewriting his book I suddenly put a prostitute in, in my book, but I didn't want her to be dismissed. And and so that was what that was about. But at the same time, I, I have, I've had people react really strongly to this novel who are really upset with her because it's prostitution. And I just – I didn't see it that way, and I didn't make a moral judgment about it, and I really did think that she was playing a game, and I don't think she did anything wrong, and, and people are going to disagree with me about that. But – and and there's, there's the truth about, about teenage girls who have money for sex that I read once about to to make money for clothes. And so I just wondered if that was, was like something like very different. If this is something you're doing for yourself, if it's a game, if it's not, you don't have a pimp, like what is it? It's just sort of exploring with what sex can mean to a young woman. And so I was just kind of learning about it through writing about it, I think.
0: After that incident, we see Leah working for Judy and Mm -hmm. being sort of nonchalant about it. I mean, she didn't really care that much. I mean, she, she loved Judy, but she didn't recognize her own feelings enough to tell her. And in her life, when she wasn't there, she had a boyfriend who didn't treat her very well. And then as she moves on into adulthood, she doesn't seem to have that much power over her life. So in a way, when we see her having this boy pay her for sex, it's the most powerful she's been in the book. Is that fair to say?
1: I hadn't thought about it that way. I could see, like, I would accept that as an interpretation. That, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, people see Leah as, like, a, a passive character. And I just wondered, I guess there's some people who are ambitious and they know what they're going to do with their life. And I don't know if floating through his passivity is a, is a bad thing or not. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm just interested in that because people find that really bothersome about this character. And I feel like she's always making choices about things as they come. So it's not quite being passive. I don't know. I don't think of her as a powerless character, I guess is what I'm reacting to. But I think, I think she found power in that scene in college. And so that helped her. And then, I mean, I think it was good that she like left that college where she wasn't thriving. I think, you know, she told herself that she left that school because of this incident that, you know, she was going to get in trouble from, but I think instead she went to a place that was better for her. And so I think she's constantly making mistakes and then figuring out what's better for her
0: do you think her not saying she loved Judy at the time was about youth or do you think it was about who Leah is?
1: I think it was about not knowing. I think sometimes you take things for granted and I think you don't actually know that, I mean, a boss is somebody that you don't think that you're supposed to love by the way. Do you know what I mean? Like I think sometimes maybe with Leah that loving somebody is also kind of vulnerability that she doesn't want herself to have, but I think she just really didn't know. And that's just a sad thing that she figured it out too late.
0: Hans is her husband. He is a fellow writer. It seems like what she really wants to do is write her novel. And Mm -hmm. he wants to sit down and have a dinner with her and cook the dinner and watch a movie with her every night. And she just seems kind of bored with him. Yeah, There's an incident where she hears about Judy and sort of the boredom is welling up inside of her and the fact that she had just finished her novel and didn't even tell him and that she's kind of on the cusp of, of maybe Mm -hmm. something new. And when Judy dies, she's offered a free plane ticket to go to San Francisco and he does not want her to go. And he, he chokes her. And is that an errant move? Is it something foreboding for what would come in their relationship? He'd never done anything like that before.
1: I mean, I think if that relationship had continued, I don't I don't think he probably never would have done it again. I think that was something that was out of character. But I think there's something, maybe I was thinking a little about, bit about love. And and I wish it, it could always be perfect for people, but I think there's sometimes an imbalance. And in, and in this marriage, in this book, I mean, her husband just loved her so much more than she loved him. And I guess that's not a good thing in a, in a marriage. And so, and I guess, I mean, I'm talking about writers, like you asked me questions about writing and how you deal with rejection later on. I think some writers are very open and want to talk about everything and they want to share their work. And some, like, I think Lee is a secretive character. And so I think, I guess in her marriage, she was keeping a lot of secrets in that not about things that she was doing or lies, but she was keeping herself a secret. And that's not a good thing for for a marriage. I don't think. And so, I I mean, I think this marriage, I mean, I think choking was a metaphor. Like she got choked, but she was also just being choked by the relationship. So in a strange way in this book, not in real life, but in this book, like the choking sort of set her free because it gave her a reason, you know, like I better get out of here. And a reason came to her. I mean, it all sort of happened simultaneously, but, but having something really awful in that marriage was almost what she needed to say, okay, I'm done. If that had not happened, you know, maybe she could have been married for 10 more years. Who knows? Or never. Some people never get divorced. You know, I've seen, I've seen older people married for 40 or 50 years and happy the whole time. So
0: I love seeing happy marriages too. You know, it's just tricky. So did that, that idea for him choking her come out sort of in that flow of writing that you get in when yeah, heard.
1: totally did. I mean, this book sort of just sort of came sort of organically to me. And I just started writing a fight and it just escalated. And so one of the things I really like as a writer, by the way, is I just always like to surprise myself, even when I'm writing about things that are autobiographical or not. I never know what a character is going to do. I never know where a fight is going to go. And so it's interesting. And that was a hard scene to write because I just wanted to keep mm-hmm. on escalating. it. And it was interesting because later on working with an editor, I mean, she found that scene so upsetting that she actually wanted me to edit out That moment. And I was just like, but sometimes you just, I mean, novels are different than real life in that you need to compress things or you you can make like 20 years, you need to have interesting things happen in a book, by the way. I was like, I can't take this scene out. It's good. And if it upsets a reader, I mean, that's a good thing to upset somebody, you know, not good. Like, you don't want to make people sad, but you want to get them emotionally involved and invested and, and feel. And so if I'm upsetting somebody, I think that's good because I'm really working, you know, that my words are really like making people feel involved. And sometimes, you know, the same, the next scene, I might be able to make somebody laugh with my writing. And so, but I didn't know that I was going to write it until I did.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Marcy Durmansky, author of The Red Car. Do you think you can go back to your past or what do you think revisiting your past can offer you or what did it offer Leah?
1: I think it's so interesting to to just think about who you were and what you could have done and what you didn't do or what you wish you had done. And like I said, part of this book is like to me, I, I thought about this book in terms of a fairy tale because Leah does get to revisit her past and she gets to do things differently you know what I mean and so it's like a revisionist history like oh this is what I would like my life to be so like for instance I I I lived in San Francisco and I was a much younger person and so I got to take my character and make her go back and have a different future and so that's sort of fun I mean sometimes people can write like revenge stories where if you're angry at somebody you can like totally be cruel to a character in your fiction or in this character I just wanted Leah to make Different choices than I had, you know, and that's why in a way this book sometimes is very personal to me. But I think you, you can go back to your past. And I think everybody does at some point revisit a place or people go to their college reunions and meet old people. I think we're always so interested in who we used to be and who we are.
0: And we're the same person all, you know, it's a continuum. When she goes back, it's been 10 years since she's yeah. seen Judy. And when she was with Judy, uh, they would sometimes leave work and have long lunches and have cocktails. Mm. And Judy was single who left an abusive alcoholic husband and yeah. never remarried and she had saved all this money and she wanted this red car and she bought this red car and the moment leah saw it uh she didn't like it she <laughs> yeah she, she and she said something that hurt judy's feelings and then she's backpedaled and said this is great I, it's beautiful for you and then the way judy died was she crashed in that red car and then she left the car to leah yeah It wasn't just crashed. It was a suicide crash.
1: Well, it's ambiguous. I think it was a suicide crash. But at the same point, I mean, this was my Murakami influence. Another car crashed into Judy's car. So was it a suicide? I mean, I think it was. But, you know, it's not 100 percent clear. And so I think perhaps, you know, she this character um, left a, a kind of suicide note. But I don't think she knew what was going to happen. So perhaps she left her her red car, not knowing that was going to, how she was going to die in it. It's funny. It's like a vehicle, like a car is a vehicle, but it's also how she takes her journey. And so part of it was necessary as a plot device. And then after I write it, you can think all these different things. Like, did Judy know what she was doing? And isn't this creepy? And maybe it was a little bit creepy. I mean, now I'm making things up. Maybe Judy was a little bit angry at, at Lee, and she left her this car. But I don't think so. I think it was all left in love. And so I think... There are just some twisted elements
0: to it. So in the red car, in addition to the uncanniness of Leah receiving this inheritance of this red car that's smashed up and then gets fixed and she takes on this road trip around California, is that she hears the voice of Judy. And Mm -hmm. you're not really sure if Judy's speaking to her, like from the dead, or if Leah's just kind of putting her, what she thinks Judy would say. Obviously you talked about Murakami, but can you talk about this element of the novel?
1: I don't have a definite answer because this is fiction. And to a certain extent, I feel like voices talk to you when you write books, by the way, these characters are talking to you. It's all coming from in yourself, but I could go either way. And I could say that Judy's just a voice in Leah's head. and Leah's always thinking things and she's attributing it to Judy or Judy could actually be a ghost talking to her. But I feel like I had, I just feel like as a, as a person, as an individual, like you, you encounter so many different people and you spend so much time with your parents or your lovers or your friends. You can just go somewhere else and you could ask yourself a question and you'd think, oh, this is what my mom would tell me to do. And this is what my boyfriend would tell me to do. And this is what my friend so-and-so would tell me to do. And I, I don't feel like that's a form of crazy, but I feel like I can hear people talking to me all the time without being in the room. And so I I think, I I mean, I think writing is really fun, by the way. And so I got to have so much fun with this book because people are just always talking to Leah. And there's, there's one scene where, Judy is talking to Leah, but at the same time, the Jonathan Bean character is actually speaking to her with real words, and they're saying the same thing, and it's kind of funny.
0: So Jonathan Bean is the character that she had sex with yeah. when she was young, and then she he becomes a very rich and famous. Can you yeah. tell us how he became rich and famous and then about um, his feelings about Leah?
1: Right. I mean, this this character becomes rich and famous because he starts a tech company. And in my mind, it was a little bit like imaginary, like a little bit like a, a Kickstarter company where he sets a tech company where people give small amounts of money or get money for their art project. But when the, the company makes money, they give some of that money to charity and or to um, to women in third world countries. And and I think part of it is Haverford is a real college and it's it's a school full of people that are really earnest and doing good in the world. And so I, I kind of like took like real technology and thought about the school and those values and had fun creating this character. And then part of it is like, again, this book is a revisionist history. And I think to, you know to some extent you meet people in college and most of the time, you don't necessarily get to see them again and have them, like Jonathan Bean comes back into Leah's life and he tells her exactly what she wants to hear. Like he he um, he um says he loves her and he forgives her or, you know, and he just wants her to be happy. and It's just nice, you know, and I'm giving Leah all these things and I think that's a fun thing to do with writing is to just give a character what they need where in real life you have people that you meet all the time and people are just really disappointing, unfortunately, and they don't always give you what you want. And so I was giving Leah all the things that she wanted. So if she were to imagine a future encounter with this person that, you know, she had a painful thing when she was 20
0: and have it just the way she wanted, I kind of gave that to her. It was just like a gift. You're listening to first draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen public radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Marcy Dermanski, author of the red car. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: yeah I can do that I was trying to think about that and one of the funny things about my life right now is that most of my books are in the basement of my parents house and so I thought about all of these books that I wanted to talk to read about and I was like I don't have books anymore because I've just simplified my life so much but so I just have the opening page of of a Murakami book The Wind-Up Bird Chronicles which I read when I was in graduate school and this is how I became you know started to write in Murakami writer of my own. So I'm going to read the first page of that book. And it's really simple. When the phone rang, I was in the kitchen boiling a pot full of spaghetti and whistling along with an FM broadcast of the overture to Rossini's The Thieving Magpie, which is to be the perfect music for cooking pasta. I wanted to ignore the phone, not only because the spaghetti was nearly done, but because Claudio Abado was bringing the London Symphony to its musical climax. Finally, though, I had to give in. It could have been somebody with news of a job opening. I lowered the flame, went to the living room, and picked up the receiver. 10 minutes, please, said a woman on the other end. I'm good at recognizing people's voices, but this was not one I knew. Excuse me, to whom do you wish to speak? To you, of course, 10 minutes, please. That's all we need to understand each other. Her voice was low and soft, but otherwise nondescript. Understand each other, each other's feelings. I leaned over and peeked through the kitchen door. The spaghetti pot was
0: steaming nicely. And and I can just stop there. And tell me a little bit more about why you chose this and why it speaks to you.
1: I think because this is like the beginning of a book. And I feel like something is just getting set up so fast. Like this phone call, you just know it's going to lead to something, something big. But it's mysterious. And that's, you know, page one. And at the same time, he's cooking spaghetti, which is just like the most boring thing ever. And it really matters to him. The scene will go on and it's a lot about draining the pasta. And I kind of love the combination of like the mundane over, you know, qualities of life, and just the supernatural happening. And just I think as a writer, just knowing that you can sort of you need to start the plot on page one, like, the reader knows that this mysterious phone call is going to lead to something. And I think sometimes with other books that I read, it can take so long for a story to start. And so I really love how, how it's just, you know, in the first three paragraphs, you're, you're getting set up for something, even though you don't know what it is.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft?
1: Yeah, I can. And what I I selected to read for you um, was part of the the letter that Judy wrote to Leah in, in the red car, because it's, it's a bit of a suicide note. And that was just not an easy thing to to do, because you want to just get that so right, you know, because you don't want to have the book not resonate. So it was really important. And, you know, the letter's long, but I started from the middle to read to you. I loved you, Leah, though I don't think you appreciated me, because I was your boss and not your mother. Because you did not respect me for having an office job. You had this idea that your life would be so much more than mine. You never liked my red car. I'm not stupid. I don't think you thought that I was stupid. I don't think you valued me enough. Here I am writing you a letter to read when I'm dead, believing that my words will mean something to you. It seems odd to me, choosing you, when I don't believe you valued me enough. Shouldn't there be someone else? Well, let me tell you, it is hard to find true love, or just love, to love and be loved back. Also, you were young, and you did not know better. You're still young, and I have been lonely. I've made peace with my loneliness long ago. It is hard to be five foot one and wear thick glasses and meet a man worthy of my wit and intelligence. All my life, I've been underestimated because of my height. And, I, and I'll stop there.
0: And could you talk could you talk a little bit more about that passage?
1: I feel like I was just talking about big things in this book. I was talking about dying and not being fulfilled and talking about love and wanting to be loved and not being loved. And, you know, sometimes people will talk about this book and they'll say it was a quick read because it's like 200 pages and you can read it in a night or they'll just say, it's really fun because it's a quirky story and there's an adventure. But I think I was trying to get to the, to the heart of existence and what it means to like be alive and, and and feel value for your own life. And, and, And in a suicide letter I was just really trying, you know, have somebody look at their own existence. And so that just felt like a brave thing to write. And so I rewrote that letter a bunch of times before I felt happy with it. Where do you write? I'm not that picky about writing anymore, which I think is a good thing. I write at home a lot. I have a desk that I love, an old secretary desk, but if I'm feeling restless or if some days and I sit down and I want to write in my, just my apartment's too messy, I'll just go to a cafe. I wrote a lot of the red card in, in a Starbucks and a really nondescript Starbucks with headphones on. And so I think it's more just for me about sitting down and doing the work than where I am.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Recently,
1: I was thinking about that. I really like to just go look at the flowers has been a new thing and I have this favorite place and. It's called Wave Hill, and it's you know this beautiful kind of acreage land where there's um incredible flowers everywhere and it overlooks the Hudson River and there's a really nice cafe. but but usually, if I want to get away from things, it's going somewhere beautiful. There's now I moved a little bit further away from Wave Hill and there's a place called Mills Reservation. I like to take a walk. I think being outside even in bed weather is something that's good for me when i'm when I don't want to write.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: It, it changes a lot I right now I just have a friend I have a friend named Shelly and she loves my work and I'll just say I'll just have her read it and, and you know I, I usually have her read it when I'm pretty much done and so far you know she's just so enthusiastic about my work so I'm like oh I'll give it to Shelley and she'll read it in a day and you know she read the red card she's like oh this book will be it for you and send it to your agent so I really sometimes I have this reader and it's more just to like be praised or just to be told to keep going than to get help. I don't have any kind of like writer's group or anything like that, which maybe that'll change. But right now I, I pretty much work independently and then I show it to a friend I know is going to like my
0: work. <laughs> and how have you dealt with rejection? Rejection is hard. Um,
1: you know, it doesn't, I, I mean, it hasn't let stop me for instance. And in the very beginning I felt like getting a short story published was harder than selling a novel. And I used to keep a shred, a spreadsheet and I had a short story that I sent out like 38 times before it got taken. And then I've actually had that story reprinted twice called Adults at Home. And so I think you just keep going. I've gotten a little bit more secretive about my work after I got, I had—I wrote a short novel after Bad Marie that was rejected. And then I just retreated a little bit and I sort of wrote in secret. So I think I, I share my work a little bit less until I know it's ready to be published. But it can't stop you. I think it's just part of the writing life. I think even I think it never there's never a blank pass for you to just keep getting published, even after you've been published a few times. And criticism actually is a good thing because you don't want something that's not ready to go out. You want somebody to tell you the truth. But I also like having friends like Shelly that just say, this is wonderful. But rejection, you just have to you just have to keep on going after it.
0: And what is your favorite word? My favorite word. I tried to think about that and I couldn't come up with
1: one. I'm like, oh, I don't know. So I came up with just love because right now this world just feels so full of hate right now. And this is the election. And I love it when people tell me that, you know, that I'm loved. And my daughter always says, I love you. I love you. So that's my favorite word.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Marcy Dermanski, author of The Red Car, you can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft to dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.